Mindfulness Mode 203. That happened with emotions. As, as I became more aware of them, personally, I don't particularly like feeling angry. And so the more I become aware of it, the more that I would tend to become more calm and become less stressed. You're listening to today's episode of Mindfulness Mode. I'm your host and Mindfulness Life Coach, Bruce Langford. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, Mindful Tribe, I'm excited today to announce our t-shirt winners. As part of our 200th episode celebrations, we gave away Mindfulness Mode t-shirts to the first five listeners who sent an email in response to the contest. Congratulations to Evelyn Marsalis, Jeremy Page, Girish Bally, Franco Blasic, Raphael Luis. So, yeah, again, congratulations, winners. Last time on Mindfulness Mode, I talked with the anxiety expert, Mr. Tim J.P. Collins. He shared his story of how he experienced huge anxiety, made it through to the other side, and how he has now helped hundreds make their own way through. Today, I'm talking with Joshua Spodek who is all about leadership, making science into art, and oh, so many things. You'll find out he is passionate about mindfulness. So sit back, relax, and enjoy today's fascinating guest. Okay, Mindful Tribe, let's get started. I am excited to have Joshua Spodek on the line today. Hey, Josh, are you in mindfulness mode? Yes, I am. That's great. So let's start with this, Joshua. What does mindfulness mean to you? So mindfulness to me means to be aware of your mind in the way that you're generally aware of the outside world. Most people, if you look around, you can see, you know, there's a tree over there, there's a sky up there, there's the ground beneath me. A lot of people, you, if you ask them, how do you feel right now? What's your emotional state? What are you thinking about? What are the words going through your head? They know that it's there, but they're not really aware of it. And so mindfulness to me is awareness of that in the way that you're aware of the outside world. Well, being aware just is everything. It just totally is. And you're a scientist, an astrophysicist. What motivated you to get into that field? I'd like to dig in and talk about that. When I was younger, like grade school, I did okay in math and science. It wasn't, it, it wasn't a big challenge for me. It wasn't a big passion of mine, but it wasn't a big challenge either. Uh, but I shied away from it because it was socially not, it didn't work out for me. I was nerdy and geeky and made fun of. And, and the more I did it, the more I made, got made fun of. So I wouldn't do it. When I went to college, a big experience was that I took a year off between junior and senior years. So I just took a year and, and traveled. Right. And when I came back, it gave me the confidence to say, look, I want to study this stuff. I like it. And I don't care if it's a social hit. I'm still going to, meaning, you know, I don't care if it's a problem. I, I, I just love it. And what science is, in particular physics for me, it is not like for a lot of people, they think it's about solving hard problems, although there is that. They think it's about working in a lab. There is that. But for me, science is curiosity about nature and the honest reporting of your results and doing experimentation. And to me, it's, there's a curiosity to it that it's always had this childlike joy to it that even when I was solving really hard problems and sitting in a lab, there's something in the back of my mind that was always I'm a child playing with 
you know, sticks and, and rocks and things like that just to see how it all works. And you helped build an X-ray observational satellite to go into space. So that sounds like something that got your curiosity peaked. Tell us about that project. So that was a, my, my advisor designed a component of a satellite that was such a great advance over what was originally there that they said, okay, you're in charge of this piece of the satellite. And I came in about, the project was about 10 years from when it was first conceived until when it launched. And I came in with about three years left to go. So the early stuff was just kind of figuring out how it worked. I was there for the building and testing of this one particular component. I had before that been doing uh, high energy particle physics, which to me was, that's like getting to the most fundamental parts of nature, the most basic of like charge, mass, what, what are time, distance. What I didn't like about physics at that time was that it was a lot of debugging and a lot of, you know, the, the United States had just defunded the, the superconducting super collider, which was going to be bigger than the LHC and it was going to be in Texas. And so there was a big kind of deflation in the field that the U.S. decided not to do this big basic research thing. And I kind of felt it where I was. And there was this other experiment that, was, that my advisor was working on. He was, he was such an important player in the field. And the satellite was something that was like I could work on a small, small number of people. I didn't have to feel like I was one of tens of thousands of people like in high-energy particle physics. And... Then I started, I didn't know a whole lot of astrophysics before that, but it's really, you know, incredibly fascinating, you know, and the, the beauty of space and galaxies and supernovas and things like that was just, you know, it's what's not to love. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, my son is fascinated with science. He loves math and science, and he's just really digging in deeper and deeper. He's 15 years old. He also loves drama and music and the arts as well. And I know that you're into that, too. You had an art installation in New York. Can you share about that and your your interest in art? Yeah, I had several installations. So I was, when I was in physics, as much as I love and still love physics. The practice of it is, like I said, there's, uh, there's a lot of debugging, and this, the physics that I studied from a couple generations before me was much more hands-on, and now it's much, much bigger, and I didn't like that part of it. So I ended up leaving physics after getting a PhD to start a company. The company was based on an, an invention of mine, which was this optics thing that when you would move past it, it would, it would look like there was something animated inside. There's actually no motion. It's just you would use your motion to make the images inside look animated. And the company that I started ended up doing the commercial aspects of this medium. But personally, for this medium I created, I was very interested in it's different than any other medium out there. There's no other medium that where you move and it makes it look animated inside. And I could not resist making art with it, even though I had no background in art. I mean, maybe the last class I'd taken in art was in junior high. And this was when I was in my late 20s. Even though I didn't have much of a background in art, the medium was so different and I was the only one doing anything with it that that gave me entree into the art world. So I had gallery shows and I had pieces up in, in parties and clubs and eventually I had solo gallery shows and pieces in museums and things like that. And it was just exploring a medium that no one knew anything about and no one else could do anything with except me. At the beginning, I had to work with other people because I didn't know how to create images I could technically make images and, and animate something, but I didn't know like how to I didn't know how to express myself. I didn't know 
I was very scared, actually, of showing what I considered beautiful to people who could judge me. It was a scary prospect. It's, I didn't want to be vulnerable about what I considered beautiful. And so it was a big challenge to face and overcome my fears and anxiety of exposing these vulnerabilities. And even without even exploring, just to explore myself. So that by the end of what I was doing, and I stopped doing it because I got into leadership, not because I wasn't loving it, but because I felt I'd, I'd rather be really excellent in one thing than mediocre or even above average in a few things. And by the end of it, I was, it's funny, at the beginning I had to work with other people and they would create the images and I would animate them and put them in my, in my medium. And eventually I would try to do stuff and it didn't come out that well. Eventually I went back to the basics of form and color and line and shape and the very fundamentals. And finally, when I went back to the beginning, I started learning to express myself through my medium. And it was a great, I, I loved that experience. Well, it sounds really fascinating, and I understand how this could be used in art and how you use this for your art shows, but what was the scientific purpose of using motion to create animation? There, I don't think, I wouldn't say that there was a scientific purpose. It was, I was, at that point, exiting science to create, how do I put it? I, I was frustrated and I, I felt trapped by science. I, not by science, but by uh, the life of a researcher is in in the late 90s, in the 2000s, it, was, it wasn't a fun life. It wasn't something, a style, a lifestyle that I wanted to do. So I, had, I left it and ended up going into entrepreneurship. And that was a big change, and a change I'm very happy that I did. So this work doing the art and the, the gallery shows, how did that help you move forward in your career? It was, it was actually my first teaching was teaching art, which is kind of weird because at the time... I had a PhD in physics and an MBA. And my first teaching was teaching art students at NYU. I couldn't have predicted that. And actually my first display that I made with them was a big public display in Bryant Park. And that was a hustle. That was, I had to go to Arts for Transit, which is part of the New York City MTA, the, the subway, the people who run the subway. And I knew that if I got display, a display up there, they would like it, that the riders would like the display. I knew that if I went to NYU and got some students to work on it, that they would get, and I, need, I couldn't just do it on my own. You, you, to go to the MTA, you can't just be like, hey, I'm an artist, I want to put some art up. You have to have something that makes it so that you're making the world a better place in some way. So right. showing art to passengers, that's part of it, but also having having students on board is another big was another big thing so i went to nyu and said how about this i think i can get into the mta and uh, how about i work with some students and they're like well maybe and so i had to go to the mta and say i got students i had to go to nyu and say i got the mta i had to go to my company and say i got this way that i can put it up and i got with using no one's no one had any budget using displays that were lying around and and getting students credit for doing this work and stuff that they could put on their resumes for putting up big public artwork in New York City. I got everything to work. And that was before it happened. And absent my running around doing all this stuff, there was no chance of this happening. So I conceived of something that came like out of the ether, came out of nothing right. that everybody benefited from. And that was one of my first leadership exercises, one of my first 
leadership outcomes that I really, that I made happen. And it's been one of my models ever since to be able to go to a bunch of people, tell them, develop a vision based on their interests and needs and how I could help meet them and get them all involved in a way that everybody benefited. And I think I've been doing things like that ever since. Certainly my working with NYU, I, now I'm, I'm an adjunct professor and working almost full time. That's also been something that I've listened and understood to what people needed and wanted in order to deliver something better than they had already. And I've just been doing something similar ever since. Well, I'm doing, doing lots of things, but the, that hustle I've been doing a lot. Well, I was just going to say your YouTube channel is called Fundamentals of Hustling. Leadership, yeah. entrepreneurship, sales, strategy, motivation. So tell us about that and about your interest in hustling and helping people understand how to, how to be leaders. So a lot of how leadership is taught, I mean, leadership mainly taught in business schools and a few other professional schools, it's usually teaching you how to do things. They separate it out from other stuff. It's like this, and, and they often teach it in a way that's connected to corporate leadership. And if you look out in the world, there's a lot of people who I think are very effective leaders who came out of nowhere. Like, I don't know, Richard Branson comes to mind or Oprah Winfrey. And they do this incredible work and they take initiative and they make things happen out of the blue. And I think that comes from knowing your passions and acting on your passions, but in a way that's valuable to other people so that other people support you. And so I don't think leadership captures the term, the word leadership, I don't think captures that. Neither does the word entrepreneurship. And they often teach it in a way that's theoretical or based on principles. And they teach what I, I would say they teach about leadership. Or they teach about entrepreneurship without actually the practice of it. And for me, I don't want to know about leadership. I mean, sure, I can. it's nice to know about Martin, about Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela. I mean, they're interesting people. But I want to be like that. I want to solve problems. I want to make the world a better place in some way. I want to do things based on people's needs and delivering those things. And I think that that's, I think for me, hustling captures that. The term hustle captures that. I mean, if you talk to someone older than me, hustle, they often associate it with like the porn magazine or the movie about hustling pool. But people younger than me, I think hustle is about actively doing things. It's like shoe leather. It's doing things. You know, if you work at Johnson and Johnson, you got this big bureaucracy behind you. You don't, if you want to develop a new product, you just go to the new product division and, you know, you get the bureaucracy to work for you. Most of us don't have huge banks of resources like that behind us. And if you don't have a big brand and a big billion dollar budget and stuff like that, you have your initiative and your hustle, your ability to make things happen. The thing is, most people don't realize that they can do things. You, they, they, they don't realize you can start with zero, not even an idea, and make something happen. And if you do that, what that creates for you is... I mean, so much. It, 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 one, if you create a project and make it happen, if it's a profitable thing, maybe you got a business. If it's, even if it's not profitable, maybe it's you're solving a problem. I mean, my mom lives in an area where they want to do fracking. And if nobody organizes the community, there might be fracking where, where nobody wants it. And that's skills that, you know, someone can make that happen or not. Now that's at the, at the at the one project level, but once you realize that you can make a project happen, that you can hustle, that you can make something happen that wouldn't have happened otherwise, for the rest of your life, you are always able to take initiative, to take responsibility, and you will 
hopefully never say I'm powerless in the situation to do something. You'll always, it's very empowering. Um, does that give you a taste of it? I mean, the, yeah, it the, does. the perspective on life changes so much. Yeah, it does. And, you know, I noticed that uh, through your initiatives, you caught the attention of Tim Ferriss, and he talked about you on your show. Can you share that with Mindful Tribe? Oh, yeah, that's one of the best things in my life, that, uh, that the outcome of Tim Ferriss talking about me seems like almost inevitable in retrospect. So Tim, he enters very, very late in the picture. The beginning was that I read this article in 2011 where a New York Times reporter or columnist asked a bunch of fitness experts if you could pick one exercise to be the best, what would it be? And one of the answers that one of the, re- one of the researchers said was the burpee. And a burpee, I, I'd never heard the term before. I mean, I heard burpee of like seeds for planting gardens, but not what a burpee was. And so a burpee named after some fitness guy from a long time ago named burpee is a burpee is you drop down, do a push up and then jump up. And it's a pretty effective exercise for heart and lungs and for basically working most of your body. So one thing led to another after reading this article and I ended up doing burpees with a friend every day for 10 burpees a day for 30 days, which turned into more than that. And it turned into me deciding I'm going to do burpees forever. And I created a habit that I've done burpees since Every day since December 2011, I've done my set of burpees. And now I do two sets, one set in the morning, one set in the evening, and the other day, actually on Friday, today's Monday. So a couple days ago, I did my 90,000th burpee that wow. it was just, I, I, I mean, I look at burpees now like brushing, brushing teeth. Like I would not go to sleep without brushing my teeth. I, don't, I wouldn't brush my teeth. I wouldn't go to sleep without doing my burpees. And if you don't mind the digression, since we we're talking about mindfulness, yes. is that the, one of the things that it gave me that I didn't expect was that for me in my life, according to my values, a certain amount of vigorous exercise is important. And before stumbling on burpees and realizing that they were so easy and quick and you know, no equipment and no risk of injury, and they just are so easy to put into my life. By saying I will do a certain number of burpees every day, I no longer have to ask myself, should I do this? Should I do that? Do I have to worry about exercise? And it's such a liberating, mentally liberating experience to say, I don't have to worry about exercise ever. I know that I'm getting, a, my minimum is covered. If I want to do more, great. If I don't, that's fine too. But I never have to, it's so much more mentally taxing to decide, should I do this or should I not do that or whatever? Rather than just saying this, I've figured out that this is the right amount for me at a minimum. I do the minimum. And so if I do more, great. If not, fine. Anyway. And that's, that's the power of habit, isn't it? habit and not just any old habit, but a habit that, you know, that I, I, I worked at. Yeah. But systematizing stuff so that you don't have to think about it. And because there are other habits that people have that aren't, that, but this is a challenging habit. It's a, it's a daily habit. It's something that I, I've spent a lot of time working at. So it's, you know, I read the paper every day, not the paper, but I, you know, I read a certain amount of stuff on the internet every day and that's a habit, but it's not a habit that is self-imposed, daily, challenging, healthy, active like this. So this has, it's, be, it's more than just a habit. But yes, habitualizing things is very useful. And this is a little bit more than that. Anyway, so it turns out that the guy, my book came out last month. The guy, the fitness expert that was interviewed by the New York Times that mentioned the burpee, I got in touch with the guy about a year ago, a little less than a year ago. I, did, I don't know why I didn't think of it before, nor do I know why I decided to do it at that moment, but I just contacted him. Just, you know, I knew his name and I just looked him up on the internet and found out that his, his email address was there. And I wrote him and I said, I'm doing these burpees. I've been doing them every day for the past five years. 
And he writes back and says, I'm doing a book. Can I interview you and talk to you about putting it, putting you in the book? And so there's a passage about me in the book and his book came out a week before mine, just total coincidence. And he got an interview on Tim Ferriss. And so Tim Ferriss happens to say to him, you were quoted a long time ago as saying that the burpee was the best exercise. Do you you still stand by that? And he goes, yeah, I stand by it because anyone can do it. There's no risk of injury. It doesn't take any equipment and so forth. And then he goes, by the way, I got to send a shout out to this guy, Joshua Spodek. He's in New York City. He's his PhD, MBA. He's been doing burpees every day for the past six years. So I get all these emails. Hey, Josh, Tim Ferriss is talking about you. So it was a total coincidence. And, uh, but a little bit of hustling that I contacted the guy. But that's how Tim Ferriss ended up talking about burpees. And, and, and then Martin Jabala started talking about me. And then I was on the Tim Ferriss show. Kind of cool. That's, oh, that's really cool. That's really cool. So I just want to make sure this is crystal clear for Mindful Tribe, for our listeners. You do two sets a day, and each set is 10 push-ups. Is that correct? It began as 10 in 2011, but when 10 was, after you do it enough times, 10 becomes, you're, you're more skilled. And so 11 is the same challenge as 10 was. Sure. So 10 became 11, 11 became 12. At some point, and I was doing this every day for a month with a friend, and he decided to do double. So one set in the morning, one set in the evening. So I doubled. So by the end of that first month, we were doing, I was probably doing about 30 a day. And then since then, I've added and added and added. So now I do... It depends on how I do them. If I do, the, my baseline is to do three sets of nine in the morning and in the evening. So that's 27. So that's 54 per day. But if I do diamond push-ups, where my hands are closer together, the harder. So I do 21 of those. And if I do straight through without doing sets, if I just do straight through, then it's 26. So I, that's one of the benefits that I got from Martin Jabal, this researcher, was that he does high-intensity interval training, and I found out. I like doing this variety of doing slightly different ones each time. And then after doing the burpees, then I stretch my hamstrings and then I do an L sit or I do a bunch of ab exercises. So crunches in the morning and uh, planks in the evening. And then I do back exercise and then I do curls for arms. And that's basically my, my daily routine. It's about 10 minutes each time. And by the way, I didn't plan it out. I didn't say, I'm going to do it. I just started doing burpees and then they worked really well. So I did more and more and more. And then I realized there was something missing, like the ab stuff and the back stuff and the arm stuff. So I just added stuff in. And if someone says, Hey Josh, how can I do it? Like you, I would, I would just say, start doing burpees or whatever exercise you want to do. And then when they become, when your skills become great and they become too easy for you, just do more and more and more. And if you see something missing, add in, but I don't say try to do copy just like mine. I see. So what do you do for fun for exercise? If you've, you've done that, but then you think, oh, I want to, what do you do? Do you go take a run or what do you do? Well, I can tell you that it's getting close to the first warm day of spring and there's nothing that can stop me from going out for runs when it's the first couple of warm days of spring. I just love the sunshine, the feel of the wind on my skin. Uh, for most of my life, ultimate Frisbee was a big passion of mine. At 45 years old, I'm debating whether I'll play again this summer. I played last summer, but I injured myself and the injuries take so much longer to heal. So I may stop doing that. It's been years since I've skied, but skiing is, I love skiing. Well, let's talk about your diet. What kinds of things do you like to eat to stay at the point where you feel really good? Food has become one of the biggest passions. It's a couple of years ago. Okay. Years, decades ago in 1990 is when I stopped eating meats. And then over the years, 
since then, I gradually would cut out other things that I didn't like, like hydrogenated oils and um, fructo, high fructose corn syrup. But some big changes happened in the past couple of years in particular. One of them was that I joined a CSA, which means that uh, community supported agriculture. So it means that every Tuesday I go to a drop off point and I pick up the delivery from a farm. And the other big change was that I, you know, people always say don't eat processed food. And it wasn't obvious what processed meant. And I decided geek, in a geeky way, I was like, what, what do they mean by that? And for some reason, I, I settled on if fiber has been removed from a food, I will avoid it. Now, meat, I eat zero. Fiber removed food, I'll eat like a cookie, if not a cookie, but like um, if I'm at someone's place and they offer me something, if they offer me meat, absolutely no. If they offer me something and there's a bit of something that fiber has been removed, I might have a little bit of it. But I basically avoid it. At home, everything I have has been, it's all fresh fruits and vegetables. Oh, and I did this other thing. I said, I gave myself this little challenge. For one week, I challenged myself to buy no food where I would have to throw away packaging afterward. And I wasn't sure if I could do it. And I I was planning it for months. And finally, I just said, look, planning is getting me nowhere. I'm just going to try and see what happened. And I made it two and a half weeks. And since then, I have gotten almost no food that's been packaged. The bag of garbage takes me like six months to fill up because it used to be most of the garbage comes from food and I compost the food waste. So it takes me seriously six months to fill up uh, my canvas bag and take it to where I have to take it down the hall and dump it down the trash compactor. So I empty my garbage two, maybe three times a year now. And I eat fresh, like I buy fresh fruits and vegetables and that's almost all that I eat, uh, and plus uh, legumes from the dried, uh, the bulk food store near me, and nuts, which I bring the bags with me. And I can't tell you how much I love what I eat. And I, I, I got this pressure cooker that makes it really quick and easy to make legumes. Like lentils cook in, in like seven minutes. So yeah, last night I made my lentil stew was lentils, nutritional yeast, water. I put in um, jalapenos. Onion, parsnips, kale. For sweetness, I put in some carrot and a squash. And this was all from the farmer's market near me or from my CSA. Uh, and the legumes came, uh, the, the lentils came from the bulk food store. And nothing was packaged. And, and people come over and they're like, they can't believe how good this stuff tastes. If you're in New York, I will you know, come over for lunch and dinner. I'll make you a vegetable, one of my famous vegetable stews. Actually, talking about mindfulness, a little while ago, I was, it hit me that Fresh cooking fresh fruits and vegetables, it, it really connects us. It connects you with nature, connects you with yourself in a way that I started. I I started thinking that fresh fruits and vegetables really help you be more mindful. And I, I kept trying to think of how am I going to write about the, write about this on my blog because I couldn't quite get it. And then finally, I realized that way suggests that fresh fruits and vegetables are something extra, something nice to add a nice different thing to your life. And that is not the way that I like to look at food anymore. I like fresh fruits and vegetables. That to me now is normal, not fresh fruits and vegetables. That's to me abnormal. And everyone's free to define normal for themselves, however they want. This is just for me. But I look at fresh fruits and vegetables as that's how I think of food and packaged food. We have garbage to throw. We have, we have packaging to throw away or that someone has taken the fiber out of it, that to me removes you from awareness. That gives you diseases. 
that's not that to me is not normal anymore. Even though that's how I grew up for most of my life, for 30, 40 years of my life, that's what I ate was like packaged food. That was normal to me. But now I look at that, I'm like, that stuff is, I, it's, it's bizarre for me. I mean, I do have some packaged food. It's tough to avoid, but I've mostly cut this stuff out. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Josh. I, uh, I don't eat processed sugars. I eat very little processed food, any, anything that comes in a package or a box, very, very little of that. And I just find I feel a lot better for it. And, and the odd time, if I do happen to eat something that is some sort of processed food, I'm like, why did I do that? And yeah. then I just go right back to the other way. You know, it's just a great way of reminding me, I do not like the way I feel when I put something like that into my body. It just doesn't feel good. Feeling good, I have to say that it doesn't, it hasn't changed that much about feeling good for me. But what the big thing is that it is delicious. Uh, it my, The food now tastes better than anything I've eaten before. And by far for me, that is the biggest thing. It's delicious. And secondarily, it's cheaper. It's more convenient. It's local, so it doesn't, it, so it pollutes less. But, oh, I mean, the deliciousness is by far the biggest thing. I've never eaten so delicious as now. And this is like, on, on the chopping board right now, after we finish, I'm going to have lunch. And I got this radish and parsnip and some onion. And it's going to be the topping that goes on the stew that I made last night. And I told you what the ingredients were. And so I'm going to put that, that that's when I'm going to eat it right after this. And it's like, uh, sorry, sorry, I'm talking about how delicious it is, and I can't actually give you the deliciousness to taste, and all the <laughs> yeah. listeners are like, oh, I'll just take his word for it. It's really good. I'll be right over, Josh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tell me what's awesome about West Village. Tell me some of the awesome things. You know, there's a blog post that I hope people can, they'll have to do a little research to find, because I don't know the URL right off the bat, but a few years ago, I was, I spent a year in China. I, I came back, and I don't know if you know that the, the subway in Shanghai is it's new it's so, it's so clean you could almost eat off the floor and the airport there's so new and the airplane was like i don't like being in an airplane for so long but it's you know it's like clean and so forth and when i landed at newark airport the airport is like there's a corner i remember near the baggage carousel where like the ceiling was crumbling and instead of fixing it they just put a barrier around it to like so that you wouldn't go there but it was breaking i mean the, and and they weren't even fixing it. And then I get on the, the New Jersey transit train to get back to New York City from New York, Newark. And the platform is crumbling. And the train is creaking. And I'm like, this is a third world country. And then I get off the, the New Jersey transit. I get on the PATH train, which is a different train that comes into Manhattan. And I'm like, this train is also, it's going slow. And it's not well maintained. I'm like, oh my God, my, my nation, we don't care about infrastructure and we're, we're descending into this third world like creaky trains that run slow and breaking infrastructure and then i get off at ninth street and i come up onto the surface and i get into west village and it's i can't tell you how much i love it's like i see like hasidic jews hanging out next to black kids hanging out next to a bunch of feminists doing their protest thing and I'm like, this is glorious. And, you know, after you travel, I, I have trouble sleeping on planes, so I haven't slept for like 30, 40 hours. And it's such a beautiful day that I go and I run down to the river. You know, I put on my running shoes, I put on some shorts, and I go down to the river. And they've renovated, when I first moved into here, it was kind of sketchy down by the river where I am. But now they've, it's like parks and trees, and there's like people playing the saxophone, and people breakdancing. 
And it makes me think of the beginning of the movie Manhattan by Woody Allen, where it okay. shows scenes of New York City and it's doing the voiceover. And he's like, it was, New York was his town and it always would be. With the the Gershwin, the bum 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 bum, and that's what I was like. That's I was like, this is I love it, and the diversity, and you can do whatever you want, you can be whoever you want, as long as you're not hurting anyone. Everyone's like, go do your thing, and the architecture it's not yet so overbuilt with high rises, and so you get sunshine, and I, I could go on. Wow. Wow, it sounds awesome. It really does. I know you talked earlier about how when you were young, you didn't want to be perceived as a nerd, you know, with your science and your math. But were you ever bullied? Did you ever have to deal with with that? And do you have a story that you could share with us about bullying? I don't feel like I was bullied. I do hear people talk about bullying today, and they talk about stuff that, for me, I experienced, but I didn't see it as bullying. I felt like it was a part of childhood. Was it some things are awesome and some things suck. And I had some things that suck. And like my, my stepbrother is older than me and he would make fun of me and he would, it wasn't like torture, but he would definitely make things difficult for me. Mm-hmm. But it's hard for me to remember how I felt about it at the time. And there were definitely times when I cried as a kid, but I also cried when my parents spanked me and I don't call that bullying. Josh, I'm going to ask you five quick answer questions. Who is one person who has influenced your mindfulness practice? The biggest, one of the biggest influences was, uh, she was the, she's the ex-girlfriend of a, of a roommate of mine from graduate school. And it happened that she moved or she, she became a doctor and she was in my neighborhood and I hadn't talked to her for a long, long time. And we just met and she was like, you know, you might want to learn about mindfulness. Looking back now, it was like a very polite way of her saying, you're like missing a lot of stuff. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And that led me to do my first Vipassana retreat, which was my first experience meditating. And so it was her just offhand saying, you know, you could be a little more aware of the present moment. And I had no idea what she meant by that. I didn't know what she was talking about, but I felt that she wasn't in no way was she trying to like make me, it was purely help. You know, there's no negative, anything attached to it. I was like, so I was like, All right, I'm kind of curious. So I looked up what she talked about and eventually did it. It took me a long time to fit a two week thing into my schedule, but you know, I did it basically as soon as I could. Cool. How has mindfulness affected your emotions, Josh? Much more awareness. I mean, I'm I'm aware of these things. I I used to look at, you know, reason was rational. So emotions were irrational. And I can understand reason, so I can't understand emotions. That's how I looked at the stuff for a long time. And I didn't really know or care about emotions. And so meditation and mindfulness makes me much more aware and in the same way that when you become aware of, if you start paying attention to parts of your body, if there's tension and you notice it, whether you want to or not, you're generally going to release that tension. And that happened with emotions. As, as I became more aware of them, personally, I don't particularly like feeling angry. And so the more I become aware of it, the more that I would tend to become more calm and become less stressed. And I, my life is better. I, I don't know how else to measure my life except if for the better than the emotions that I feel. And the emotions I feel are less stressful, more enjoyable, more rewarding, more of the ones that I like and less of the ones that I don't like. How's that? That's like, it's like made my life better. Yeah, that's good. Tell us how breathing is a part of your mindfulness. Breathing is what you focus. It's the main thing that I focus on. It's the thing that the the scale at which the time scale, which it works is a regular human time scale. It's not too fast, not too slow. It never away. It's always there. 
one of the things I like about exercise is that it gets you to breathe much deeper, much more deeply than you normally would. And there's a feeling, I don't know how to describe it. When you get that last bit of breath, there's a very satisfying feeling. And I, I really like that feeling. And so I breathe more deeply and it gives me access to calmness that allows me more access to all these other emotions. So can you recommend a book on mindfulness? And I'd also like you to talk for a minute about your own book as well. Sure. I mean, the, probably the biggest, biggest one that gave me access, there's a couple. I mean, John Kabat-Zinn's books. And I guess Full Catastrophe Living would be the one that, I'm not sure. I mean, John Kabat-Zinn's all this stuff. His books, his videos. I really, I like his practice. I like, um, I'm not into the supernatural and so a lot of religious approaches don't resonate with me, but his doesn't seem to have that. It's, it's the practice that's to sit and pay attention to breath and things like that. that it's, that's been the most helpful for me. And so tell us about your own book. So my book is, there's, it's, my, my book is called Leadership Step-by-Step, Step, and it's, it's a book of exercises to practice that will give you the skills, experiences, and beliefs of being a leader. Can you share an app which helps you to be more mindful, Josh? You know, I... I'm going to be a little glib here, but it's the turn off the phone app. Yes, yes. I think it's, it's, you know, putting the phone away, having not stuff coming at you from, you know, that's to me is the biggest stuff. And food, breathing are these access points that are so great, so much better, so much far, farther, incomparably more than you can get from a phone app. So I'm sure there are great phone apps out there, but I've not found one that is anywhere close to, you know, a mango or sitting still for a half hour. Right. Josh, it has been such a pleasure to talk with you. How can Mindful Tribe learn more about what you do and possibly connect with you? So the big thing, I mean, my book is the, is the one way that I put stuff together that I spent time to edit it all and put it all in a, a coherent unit. And, you know, you can find it in Barnes and Noble and, and Amazon and all the places where you normally get books. And I want to point out, like I said, reading the book is like reading about how to play the piano. You have to do the exercises. You have to play your scales. And so a lot of people are reading it. And I think they're getting something out of it just because they see that there's a different approach to leadership. But doing the exercises is the big thing. Now, there's also the online version of the courses. And so if you go to spodekacademy.com, so S-P-O-D-E-K academy.com, then you can take the online versions. And they're, they cost a little bit more than, they cost more than the book, but they give you a lot more because they have an online forum. And when you post, in order to get from one exercise to the next, you have to post your, your reflection. And I don't know if all the people who read the book, even if they do the exercises, if they'll write their reflection. But not only do you need to do a reflection to get to the next exercise when you do it online, but you post it and it goes on a forum where everyone, you can read everybody else's reflections and they can read yours. And that leads you to reflect more thoughtfully and to write more thoughtfully and read what other people got out of it. And they, what they got out of it was so much, it's always going to be different than what you got out of it. So you can learn from each other. And there's a community spirit to it. And then the recordings, both audio and video, of me explaining the exercise to, to people and them walking through, talking about how the exercise went for them. So there's that group aspect to it. Then I'll, I'll also make, to continue with this conversation that you and I are having, there's, I'll also put a page that it'll, I guess I'll do spodacacademy.com slash mindful. And that'll give it, I'll put a link to the meaningful connection exercise that I just, just talked about, which will also have some videos of me doing it with my mentor, Marshall Goldsmith. And that way people can see a different exercise from the book. 
Cool. Oh, and then there's also joshuaspodak.com, which is my personal blog, which is, it's just me, my views on the world. I post on the blog every day for a long, long for longer than I've done burpees. So there's 2,500 posts plus. Oh, I really like that. Well, that's great. I could talk with you all day. You know, it's just fascinating connecting with you and learning from you. I really appreciate it. So uh, I urge you, Mindful Tribe, to check out the book, check out Spodek Academy online, and uh, yeah, check out uh, the forward slash mindful uh, area that he's talked about as well. So Joshua, thank you so much for joining us today and, and uh, all the best to you. Thank you. I've, I've really enjoyed this. I, I hope I haven't talked too much, or if I have, then I hope that it's that it's connected and helped people. Uh, it's. I, I really appreciate the questions you've asked and the and the the milieu that you've created. Thank you. Thank you so much, Joshua. Have a great rest of your day. You too. Yeah. Bye now. Thank you so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For insightful blog articles and show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by clicking on the iTunes link on our website and leave a rating and review. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.